Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Log Talk Radio. Hi, this is Stephen Nill, CEO of CharityChannel.com. So, you want your charity to succeed. You came to the right place. Integration of online and offline techniques is the key to your successful fundraising, and practical advice on going green is what you need. With this show, The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart, you will learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Our host is Ted Hart, one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. This year, he is celebrating 25 years in the nonprofit sector and the 10-year anniversary of his firm, TedHart.com. His books range from successful online fundraising to the use of social media and how to make your nonprofit green. His guests are leaders in their field who will share tips and trade secrets for nonprofit management, green strategy, and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking. Here's Ted. Hey, and uh, good afternoon. Uh, this is Ted Hart, and I'm in the nation's capital today. Uh, it is Tuesday, September 28th. You're here on the Nonprofit Coach, and as always, we always start on page one with the news. <laughs> news for you today, but I want to remind you that you can call in uh, to ask questions of our special page two experts. Uh, today I am absolutely thrilled uh, to have Simone Joyo, ACFRE, here in the Nonprofit Coach, uh, and you can call in and ask questions of Simone today at 347-324-3080. Uh, if you're shy and you'd rather ask a question, we're also over in the chat room, or you can email me at tedhart at tedhart.com. As always, you can follow along here on the page one news uh, by clicking on the radio links at tedhartradio.com. All right, up here, I don't think we can start the news today without talking about uh, Mr. Zuckerberg, the uh, owner and founder of Facebook. Uh, the CEO has a rather unflattering uh, movie uh, coming out, uh, The Social Network, and uh, uh, to maybe head that off a little bit, uh, a grand gesture of $100 million donated, a challenge grant, uh, donated to the New Jersey School District uh, to help improve that school district. Over in the radio links, we have uh, an interesting uh, article about uh, Mr. Zuckerberg's uh, uh, visit uh, to Oprah. Uh, and, of course, uh, you give away that kind of money, you have to go uh, uh, pay homage and spend time with, uh, with Oprah. But what was interesting is it seems that he really did succeed. He doesn't do a lot of public appearances. He seemed very uncomfortable. Uh, and in this article, I thought it was rather interesting uh, what was pointed out in terms of the comfort level that uh, people seem to pick up in terms of uh, his uh, access to all the personal information uh, that, uh, that you have on Facebook uh, as opposed to Google. I'm going to quote from uh, the article today, Facebook is the most human site of all, unlike Google. It is not about cold, hard information. It's about warm, cuddly aspects of humanity. You know, friendship, kinship, uh, and telling your ex that your ship has sailed. Uh, but uh, in seeming somewhat uncomfortable, um, it really spoke to sort of his brand and his motivations. Uh, so it may have been a, a PR success 
over on Oprah, and certainly uh, we do need to pat him on the back. $100 million is a wonderful philanthropic gift and, and certainly something we don't mean to make light of. Uh, next up here on page one on the nonprofit coach, I'm really uh, thrilled with our page two expert today. Uh, and the only way to honor someone like Simone Joyao uh, is to continue uh, the excellent uh, guests that we have here on the nonprofit coach. And you'll find over in the radio links that today we are announcing uh, our October lineup for uh, the nonprofit coach. Uh, next week we will be here on October 5th. Uh, cause related marketing expert Bruce Birch will be with us. Then uh, coming up on October 12th, you don't want to miss this one, TechSoup, all the donations of software, technology, and advice that you can get uh, from the experts at uh, TechSoup. Uh, and then uh, we'll uh, also have uh, in October Dottie Schillinger, um, who is an e-governance expert. Uh, and we'll round out uh, the month. And uh, I know a lot of you are going to be very excited about having the opportunity uh, to ask questions directly of Jed Elpert, and he is the CEO and founder of Mobile Commons. So a terrific lineup here on the Nonprofit Coach uh, for October. Mark your calendar. We are here Tuesdays at 12 noon Eastern. And of course, over at tedhartradio.com, if you miss any of the uh, terrific shows, uh, there's a few things you can do over at tedhartradio.com. So uh, first of all, uh, as I said today, you can join us in the, in the chat room. You also can listen to all the podcasts of all of our prior shows, uh, and you can just click on the little iTunes uh, logo, and uh, you can uh, add it. Uh, add the uh, nonprofit coach right to your iTunes. So when you're working out or uh, you're on a long commute, uh, bring us along on uh, uh, on iTunes and, and add that right to your your iPod. Okay, well, uh, next up uh, here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach is uh, stay with us. We're here until 1 o'clock. We'll be back at 2 o'clock. Uh, you can find in the radio links you can uh, register for a free webinar today. One of the things that we're uh, always asked is for more specifics. What can I do? Well, we partnered up with the folks over at Karma 411. I'm going to be providing, uh, it's going to be me personally, uh, here uh, from the Nonprofit Coach. Uh, we're going to be providing a webinar today. Now, you do need to register so that you've got the, the link and all the details that you need to join that webinar. But what we're going to do is really brass tacks, concrete, what do you need to do this fall? How do you make sure that your organization is going to be online and on target for being successful uh, for uh, your fall campaign. So don't miss that over the radio links uh, at tedhartradio.com. Register for today's 2 p.m. Eastern webinar. Next up, uh, I've got uh, a really terrific uh, guest that I want to bring in here on page one. Uh, and uh, I've got, uh, let me uh, just, uh, uh, Courtney King uh, is going to uh, join us in just a minute. Uh, big news, they've just released over from the Committee for Encouraging Corporate Philanthropy, the 2010 Corporate Philanthropy Resource Guide. Now this is not only a really terrific annual resource that corporations use and corporate executives use, and of course it's available to you uh, free of charge to uh, download and to be able to read right there at the radio links at tedhartradio.com. Uh, but uh, Courtney, you're here with us on the Nonprofit Coach. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. Hey, it's great to have you here, and how exciting uh, to have you uh, launch uh, this uh, new resource guide. I know how important this is uh, for CEOs and corporate executives uh, to know just where to go and what's important. And, and of course, I'd be remiss in not pointing out uh, that everybody who reads your document, uh, and it is available today in the radio links, uh, should be focusing on page 131 and page 138. Uh, why is that? <laughs> I believe those are the organizations that you are involved in, the, the green nonprofits and people-to-people -people fundraising. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Of course, I, you know, drawing, drawing attention to those, lots of great resources throughout uh, this book. It's about a 183-page guide uh, that's available. So tell us, why do you put this together, and what's the significance to the Corporate Philanthropy Resource Guide? 
Absolutely. Well, at the Committee Encouraging Corporate Philanthropy, we work with over 150 leading companies and their CEOs and chief giving officers on developing their giving. And back in 2007, we first developed this resource because we wanted to bring together all of the sectors, both the corporate, the, the independent sectors and nonprofit sectors, so that collaboration might be more easily facilitated and people could find the information and the partners that they needed. Now, it's, been, it's become one of the most downloaded um, resources on our website, corporatephilanthropy.org, and we have continued to see the need to continue to provide this service. So we updated it over the summer and included some new organizations as well. Um, it covers consultants, membership organizations, information technology, intergovernmental organizations, academic, venture philanthropy, and news sources. So it's quite comprehensive. It's not meant to be all-inclusive, and we are going to continue to update it, but we've already received great feedback from the field, and I think that it will be a tremendous resource, and it is available for free download um, on, on our website, corporatephilanthropy.org. Yeah, I know that uh, this, this really has become a standard for a, a lot of corporate execs who maybe don't feel that they're experts in philanthropy but want to make sure that they've got the best of the best. Um, how is this put together? You have a, a team and a staff. I know uh, when you contact us, it, actually you've been working on this for many months. Uh, it must be quite a process to uh, go through and to vet all the various services and to make those available. It is. It's a time-intensive um, project, certainly, but we wouldn't be doing it if we didn't think it was a value to the field. So we do work very closely with all of the organizations that are included to make sure that the information is accurate and up-to-date and, and that those organizations who are included are providing a service that is useful for the corporate sector as well as the partners in the other sectors. Um, so we do dedicate um, quite a considerable amount of our staff time um, in order to, to create this resource, which we then post online for, for people to use. Well, that's terrific. Courtney, bravo to you and to everyone at the Committee for Encouraging Corporate Philanthropy in putting together and releasing uh, just recently your 2010 Guide for Corporate Philanthropy. Uh, thank you so much for joining us here on The Nonprofit Coach and for providing such a terrific resource to our community. Thank you to you. Next up here on the Nonprofit Coach, remember, uh, get prepared. You can call in and ask our page two expert, Simone Joyeau, who is an expert in all things related to strategic planning and board development. Uh, you can ask a question of her at 347-324-3080. Next up here on the Nonprofit Coach is to draw your attention to our next radio link, and that is the top 10 Google Apps for Project Management. We all need additional resources to be able to be more efficient, particularly in this economy. We all need to do more with less. And Google, I'm really thrilled, continues to create uh, very inexpensive and free uh, services that are, are web-based and are alternatives to traditional proprietary software. Uh, in addition to things that you're probably aware of, like Gmail and Google Calendar, uh, as I do in all of my lectures, I want to draw your attention uh, to Google Docs and so many of the other highly rated applications that are available uh, in the Google Apps Marketplace. Of course, you can find the link for the top 10 Google Apps uh, for project management right there uh, in the radio links at Ted Hart. Radio.com. Part of our job uh, here, as we see it at the uh, uh, nonprofit coach, is to draw your attention to new services that maybe you haven't heard of before. Uh, one of those services is Form Springs. Uh, Form Spring, and we have a link in the radio links today, uh, has hit one billion questions answered. And this is one of those services that you might not be as familiar with. But what's the the resource here for nonprofits? Well, I really view this as a Discussion starter. This is an opportunity uh, for you to use their platform. It's an extremely viral question and answer platform uh, that, uh, again, hitting 1 billion questions answered, uh, links right into things like Facebook and uh, Twitter and MySpace, and uh, if you've got a blog over on WordPress. Uh, but the key here is, again, engaging people, asking questions, getting them uh, to think about topics that are important to you. Uh, so again, check that out at the radio links today at tedhartradio.com and read all about form spring. 
next up here uh, on the uh, on the nonprofit coach uh, in the radio links uh, is finally finally over at Google uh, they had announced back in 2008 that they were intending to uh, make some uh, gifts to nonprofit organizations in what they called the project 10 uh, power of 100 and they have finally finally announced uh, the uh, the winners uh, in that project and uh, uh, they uh, they had kind of made some changes. They changed the project focus uh, uh, on themes, and uh, they have pr finally made those announcements. So uh, uh, bravo to the Khan Academy, uh, which has received $2 million through Google Project 10 to the Power of 100. Uh, the organization called FIRST, uh, which was founded by Segway inventor Dean Kamen, uh, publicresource.org, uh, and others, and so you can read about the folks who, who uh, helped or, or, or are the, the charities that received uh, part of the $10 million uh, given away by Google. So uh, finally, it seemed to take uh, quite a while to get that uh, get that announced and get that uh, get that released, but uh, uh, that has finally happened. A, a new service um, that uh, is uh, powered by Blackbaud, and this is a really integrated in with uh, Blackbaud, and is a partnership that they have with Visa. I draw your attention to the Visa Giving Gateway, and of course we have a link over in the radio links for you to take a look at that. Now, it's really not anything new. It's certainly uh, new for Blackbaud, and it's powered by on the Blackbaud uh, system. Uh, but um, the key here is, is that this is a service that is uh, seeking to compete uh, with uh, services like Just Give and Network for Good. But here's the important topic here for uh, all of our listeners here on the Nonprofit Coach, and that is it continues to build this necessity for all charities to update their GuideStar profile because here is yet another service, uh, the Visa Giving Gateway, which is powered by GuideStar. So we've also provided you with a direct link in the radio links today at tedhartradio.com for you to update your GuideStar profile because so many websites are now powered by GuideStar that are directly involved with uh, moving money to charities like the Fidelity Charitable Gift Fund, one of the world's largest charitable organizations. Very important that you have your act together uh, over at Google. In uh, some of my longer lectures, I'm able to really get into sharing with folks about the need for a GuideStar strategy. And many of you here on the Nonprofit Coach know that it is my position right now for charities uh, in the United States that a GuideStar strategy is far more important to big dollars and small dollars than a Facebook strategy is right now. Now, it's not to say that Facebook's not important. That, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, but what I am saying is that you need to prioritize and you need to get your act together, and getting your act together means having a strong GuideStar strategy. That strategy starts with updating your GuideStar profile, which you can do in the radio links at tedhartradio.com. Uh, next up here on, uh, on the Nonprofit Coach, uh, as I said before, um, and we've said it several times, as we do view uh, our responsibility here uh, on the Nonprofit Coach is to draw attention to uh, important resources that maybe you're not uh, familiar with. And you may be online or you may be working on, on something and you think, gee, I wish I could grab that content or grab that photo and make some edits to it and be able to incorporate it, of course, giving uh, 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 mention to the copyright holder, but being able to link content and grabbing content from the web. Well, there's a, a terrific service that you can download and use called Snagit. Uh, Snagit.com is linked over in the radio links today, uh, and that will help you grab content such as photos and things of that sort and edit it as you need it. So uh, there is another resource that's available uh, to you here in the radio links. Um, next up is um, a report that just came out. Just came out today. There was a study uh, about social media content. And I really see this as as more indication uh, that there is room for charities to succeed online. Uh, this is a, a report that uh, uh, we're sharing with you today over on Mashable, uh, and what it says is that while uh, uh, use of social media is climbing dramatically. 500 million people using Facebook, 
Twitter is now seeing more than 2 billion, that's billion with a B, tweets per month and, and continues to, to rise, those that are actually creating content has plateaued. Uh, and is not growing as fast. So if you are a content creator, if you are a charitable organization uh, that is providing unique content and unique insight into things that matter to your donors, uh, this may be one of the best times for you to be active in social media. So read all about that over in the radio links uh, where we're sharing this study uh, that's been reported on Mashable. Uh, com. Hey, I am so impressed with, uh, with all of you uh, in uh, your joining the LinkedIn uh, group that we are hosting uh, over at, as I said, on LinkedIn. Uh, it continues to grow. It's people-to-people -people fundraising, and we've got a link so that if you haven't yet joined us, we now have 828 people uh, registered um, and receiving and sharing information. This is a, a discussion group. This is dialogue that's, a, that's available to you over at LinkedIn. So if you haven't joined yet, go to tedhartradio.com, uh, and uh, in the radio links you will find a link to the people-to-people -people fundraising uh, uh, discussion group. And uh, make sure you join that. We've got some fine groups, uh, folks over there uh, who are answering questions, posing questions. Uh, lots for you to do over on uh, LinkedIn. All right, well, uh, we're now winding down here on, uh, on page one. I do want to remind you that at 2 o'clock today, I will be back with a free webinar, and there's a link to register for that in the radio links at tedhartradio.com. Get ready. Uh, you can ask questions of our expert uh, at 347-324-3080. I am absolutely thrilled to welcome here to the nonprofit coach, Simone Joyo, who is an expert in fund development, strategic planning, and board development. She teaches philanthropy at the university level, speaks at conferences around the world, and regularly serves on many boards. Those are the lucky ones that get her. Um, she has a new book out with, uh, with her husband, and it's called Keep Your Donors. And uh, Simone, you're here with us in the nonprofit coach. Well, thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. It is great to have you. And, of course, I, I have my copy uh, of uh, Keep Your Donors right here in my hot hands. Uh, and, uh, uh, of course, I'm, I'm uh, drawing my, my own attention uh, to page 332. I have to say it's uh, a thrill to be listed in the table of contents for uh, a uh, uh, Simone Joyo and Tom Ahern book. Uh, and on 332, I just wanted to uh, uh, share something with our, our listeners here that, that you put in your book here and ask you to, to sort of uh, reflect on this and, and how you put together this section of your book. And it says that uh, although some have predicted that, that e-philanthropy will replace many traditional approaches to soliciting support, this will not be the case. Of course, you're quoting me uh, in an interview that you did just as television failed to kill radio, yet significantly changed so, uh, too will the Internet change traditional forms of fundraising, not by eliminating them, but by changing their ability and increasing their effectiveness. How, how does this fit into better communications and stronger relationships? Well, you know, one of the things that I've always appreciated in the conversations that you and I have, Ted, is that you keep referring to whether it's email or Facebook or typewriters or telephones, that these are tactics. And that what we're really talking about here is figuring out ways to nurture relationships with our current donors so that we can keep them and find ways to identify new prospects and begin to get to know them. So I think one of the the really the things that I preach about and, and start to rant and rave about is if we could embrace a philosophy of genuinely caring about our donors and genuinely being interested in what interests our prospects, that that is the basis of our work. That is the concept of being customer-centered and donor-centered. And then we can talk about 
would it be best if I called Ted on the telephone? Should I send Ted an email? Will I connect with Ted through Facebook? But it's the, the fundamental philosophy and the framework of our work that's about really being interested in where others are at and not being overly distracted about the tactics that we use. And, and not, not sort of being snowed over by, by the technology. I do remember when we were chatting that, that, that actually seemed to surprise you, and I think it does surprise a lot of uh, folks because, of course, I, I've written in uh, you know, each of my five books that are, that are related to use of the Internet for fundraising. Uh, I guess people just kind of assume that I'm going to be just pushing technology and everything about technology, and I don't, and that really did kind of surprise you, didn't it? Well, it, it surprised me initially, but then it made sense because, if I may say, you and I have been in the profession for a number of years. You know what I think is, is more surprising perhaps or actually very rewarding is sometimes when I'm teaching and I'm talking with younger people, the, the millennials, and we all assume that they are only interested in text messaging, etc., that the really smart ones are saying, oh, no, I get that that's only a tactic. I get it. It really is about finding out what interests people and creating genuine relationships with them. Now, you, you are, of course, uh, one of the premier experts uh, in our field, and I, and I always uh, feel that one of the, the, the best measures of whether or not someone is really truly worth the contract, really worth the, the salt, is would other, co would other consultants hire you? I mean, we, we all can sit and say nice things about each other, but you know, would the, uh, a fellow consultant hire you? And I don't mind telling uh, our listeners uh, today that, yes, in fact, I have hired Simone uh, Joyo, uh to help with boards of directors that I've been involved with uh, because she's just that good. Um, Simone, what makes you that good? I mean, what what do you focus in on when you're working with boards of directors that really makes you stand out? Well, I think perhaps it's that I'm very interested in the organizational dynamics, the dynamics between people. So while I believe firmly in guidelines, descriptions, policies, job descriptions, and all of that sort of thing, I think those are very, very important tools. They're only tools, and they break down if, in fact, we don't adequately understand the dynamics of people together. So one of the things that I'm always saying, as I say, when I'm either working with my clients or presenting, teaching, is that, yes, we will invent the job description of the board. We will articulate and adopt as a policy the performance expectations of the individual board member. But then... We have to look at how the group plays together. And one of the things that I am most concerned about in boards that doesn't change, it seems to me, very often is that we have a very hierarchical approach to our board meetings, that we think board chairs have more authority than other board members, that we believe executive committees get to talk about things in secret and then sort of make recommendations to the board, and that we discourage, instead of encouraging, conversation at board meetings. Board meetings become reports. Individuals who ask questions that go too deep are considered disloyal, mm -hmm. and we simply don't pursue the why and we just don't have conversations. And, and, so that's and I, I agree with you. I mean, one of the things that uh, you and I are, have been involved with board development for a number of years, and, and we, we very much see things in, in the same way. And one of the things that I find as I travel around the world and, and work on board development uh, is how few board members actually know what a board is supposed to do uh, and what their, the expectations are and how few board members have any idea what's in their bylaws. Right. You know, it's, I always say to people, our whole lives we've been trained to be managers. You tell your children, finish your homework, 
and finish your chores, and then we'll go see the movie. We were taught, we've always been taught to manage. We have not been taught corporate governance. We don't understand that corporate governance is a collective activity, that corporate governance only happens at board meetings when we are together. And when I say that, it's just stunning to watch the people look at me and go, what? It's like, yes, corporate governance is a collective activity. It happens at board meetings. You're not a good board member, even if you're the largest donor, if you don't go to board meetings, because that's where governance happens. Exactly. And and at the same time, I share share with uh, uh, folks that I provide training to is that I'm also uh, a big fan of limiting the number of board meetings for those activities that require action on behalf of the board. In other words, don't just have a meeting for the sake of having a meeting and don't expect to be read to uh, when you come to a board meeting. They should be active opportunities for you to interchange with your fellow board members. I mean, really, what we're trying to do, it seems to me, in a board is we're bringing together wise people who actually serve in many ways as a think tank for us. And so that's what we want to have, those conversations, uh, instead of, as you say, the reports. I always joke, we can read. Send us the reports in advance. We don't need to have committee reports on the agenda. The only time a committee needs to, quote, report, unquote, is if it actually wants to engage us in a conversation about something. Exactly. Exactly. I'm a big. I'm a big fan of, uh, as you know, of, of the what's known as the consent agenda, uh, where reports are filed, they're sent, and uh, management and the, the board chair does have every right to expect uh, that board members will actually read these reports, uh, as opposed to coming to the board meeting and expecting to have them read to them. But it's but it's a matter of form and approach because if you always go to board meetings and all you do is sit there and have information presented to you, and there's never dialogue, there's never discussion, then that's what you think a good board is. Exactly. And, you know, once I tell this story, I'm sure this will amuse you, Ted. Uh, Once I was doing a presentation and a conversation with a board about um, good governance and I think also about fundraising, and at one point during my remarks, a gentleman leaned towards me and he patted me on the hand and he said, well, Missy, I've served on more boards than you are old. And I turned to him and I said, ah, yes, but I'm right and you're wrong because I know the body of knowledge and the fact that you've served on more boards than I am old doesn't mean you know anything about governance. Well, it's one of the most difficult things for people to do, which is which is one of the main reasons why I think uh, uh, consultant, why you and I have business, and and why consultants are, are hired is because it is often very difficult to uh, speak truth to power. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and and oftentimes that is what's required uh, for an organization to be able to move forward. Well, it's interesting that you you raise the term power, Ted, because I think that that is one of the major dynamics that we have that harms good governance. Because the dynamic of power plays out regularly in groups. And you can watch it play out at board meetings. So let's pretend that you're the board chair. And you're the owner of the biggest single company in our state. Well, you have a lot of power, and the rest of us are just not sure that we actually want to, you know, question you too much. Or you are Ted Hart, the Ted Hart we know, and you and I serve on a board together. But I'm hoping that you're going to hire me for your business. And so I don't want to question you at board meetings for fear that will make you angry. Or we've got the issue of socioeconomic status within board meetings. So all of these dynamics are going on, and people are tend to be very reluctant to, as you say, speak truth to power. The other thing that I think goes on in boards and at board meetings is we have lost the art of conversation. People don't even know how to ask strategic questions that help engage others in conversation. We're trained to listen to reports. And research even shows that apparently by the time kids are like preteen, teen, their curiosity has been purged from them. So when they're little, they keep saying, why, why, why? 
by the time you're a preteen, early teen, you've been trained that asking why is not a good idea. So why would you do it at a board meeting? Right. What do you think, Simone, is the, the bigger issue holding back uh, staffs working uh, collectively with, with a board? Is it knowledge of the board in terms of how things work and, and what their responsibility is, or is it the, 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 the power dynamic? I think it probably starts with the knowledge piece, Ted. Um, one of my pet peeves is that executive directors, CEOs, don't necessarily see that governance is supposed to be one of the knowledges that they have. I believe that good governance is enabled by competent staff. And so frequently when I look at weak boards, I turn my head right to the executive director CEO because he or she never bothered to learn about governance. I very rarely see in the job descriptions of the executive directors or CEOs, very rarely do I see that they are expected to understand governance and enable their boards to do things. What they think it is It really is a skill board. that's so important, but, but it can also go the other way where the executive director actually seeks to keep the board in the dark about governance for fear that the board will actually start governing. Yes. Oh, yes. I mean, it's sort of a continuum. At one end of the continuum, you have extraordinarily smart, CEOs, executive directors, who know exactly what they're doing, disempowering the board. At the other end, you have executive directors, CEOs, who have no clue that they're actually supposed to know anything about governance so that they can help enable the board to do it. Exactly. And, it, and I just recently had, uh, had, had a client where it was, it was, it was so interesting to me. Uh, the executive director had been there for a long period of time and uh, had, had really pretty much kept the board very much in the dark about how things were, were going. And it was very much sort of rah-rah board meetings and how great things were going. And, and, I, and I was brought in, obviously, because there, you know, there were some concerns that maybe this wasn't quite going well. Uh, and as we started looking under the hood, it was really quite a disaster. I mean, seriously very close to uh, being out of business. That's how much of a difference there was between what was the feel-good to what was the reality. Uh, and as we were working through that, the board absolutely had no idea that it had any opportunity to even uh, affect the employment of the executive director. Uh, they sort of thought that was somehow magically somebody else's job. <laughs> and they felt quite, quite out of power uh, in terms of being able to affect uh, the management of the executive director. I, I mean, I just don't even know how to say to what to say to that because usually boards seem to know that they that the one thing they do get to do is hire and fire the executive director, but then they're not necessarily sure how they would ever figure out if they should or shouldn't. <laughs> exactly, exactly, and I and I think that's you know a lot of times where where I go back to uh, is is let's understand the bylaws, let's understand whose responsibility is what. Uh, and one of the things I often you know, point out, and it sounds so simple, but for boards of directors, it's almost about getting their heads around the right things, is that you can have a nonprofit organization with no staff. You cannot have a nonprofit organization with no board. Yes, indeed. You know, a thing that I also find that they get confused about is, in your specific example there, so let's say we don't have any staff. So we, the board are responsible for corporate governance. But we, the individual board members, are also doing all of the management work. And I find that they can't distinguish between the two. So what ends up happening is, at the board meeting, all they're talking about is all the management stuff. So they're never doing corporate governance. Exactly. Simone, I just want to remind everybody, we have a number of people uh, who are on the switchboard, but it is important that you press number one and raise your hand to let me know that you'd like to ask a question so I can bring you into the show. So if you're interested, dial 347-324-3080. Make sure you press number one, raise your hand, and we'll be able to bring you in to ask a question of uh, Simone. You know, I want to just uh, take a, a little bit of a detour here, um, uh, Simone, because um, I 
not, maybe it's dating me. I'm not sure if it's dating me or dating you. Uh, but uh, one of the, the very first things very early on in my career where, where I first became aware of just how skilled you were and, and how uh, uh, important your information was to our sector was when I got my very first copy of Strategic Fund Development. Uh, which is such an important book, and I saw uh, that uh, you are actually working on your third edition of that book. I am indeed. As a matter of fact, I had to pull myself away from writing to join you on the telephone today. Well, when it's fresh in your mind, and I'm so glad you are here with us on the Nonprofit Coach, give us a little bit of an insight. This, uh, I I gather, is, is, is going to come out in about six or eight months. It comes out in March or April or so um, of 2010 or 2011, so this coming spring. And you know, the the original book was about the sort of four key relationships I think that are important in fund development: your ability to enable your volunteers, your ability to nurture relationships, um, the concept of good internal relationships within the organization, and your relevance to the community. So what I've done is um, updated a lot of it, added new resources. I'm a big reader, say, of the Harvard Business Review and all sorts of other books. So there's, again, new information in it. Uh, Some of the chapters just got so long that I had to introduce new chapters. So I've got a whole chapter devoted to leadership uh, in the the sector. I have an entire chapter devoted to the fundraising professional and what it means to be a professional and what we need to know very much expanded chapter on institutional strategic planning. So, um, yeah, it'll be, it'll be available this coming spring. Always amazed at how few organizations actually have an active strategic plan. Yes. And then what amazes me on the other side is that they actually think a strategic plan is looking at their mission statement and figuring out how to achieve it. And to me... Strategic planning is a process that ensures you are relevant to the community or you close. So good strategic planning is not, as a couple of gentlemen said to me one time, oh, well, we can do this strategic plan in one meeting over a bottle of whiskey and just bang it right out in a couple hours. Uh, maybe the, the bottle of whiskey may be the, the, the pertinent point there <laughs> as to how, how good that strategic plan is is another question. Uh, what I always share with folks, and, and, and this may be uh, good for you to, to reflect on, um, is because I find this big disconnect with strategic planning where, uh, you know, maybe a consultant was hired or, or, you know, certainly there was some sort of process that was put in place. A document uh, is uh, somehow created from that, whether it's long or it's, or, or it's short. Um, but then it, it, it sort of becomes a monument to itself, uh, yeah. the strategic plan. And what I, I try to share with folks is, is and try to help boards of directors kind of get their heads around is that it, a strategic plan is actually the way for a board to organize its meetings. Yeah. That everything that the board is discussing should in one way or another relate back to the, the strategic plan because it, it is the board who's responsible for making sure that whatever it says that organization is going to be when it grows up is on track and is moving forward, whether it's a three-year plan or a five-year plan. So every board meeting should be focused on are we taking the steps, are we measuring the right things, are we moving in the right direction, but that makes it a living document as opposed to, uh, as I said, a monument to itself. Yeah. You know, I have a, a, a former client who – took the strategic plan and every single board meeting agenda was simply, so to speak, the strategic plan. So in other words, each goal was on the board meeting agenda. And yeah, that wasn't me, the only was it? thing on the agenda was the goals of the plan because everything yeah. would fall within them. I have another right, client right. who took the strategic plan and rolled it all the way out into the performance expectations and performance appraisal of employees. Yeah. Well, that's a great way to operationalize. I mean, that that's, yep. that's is a measure of a successful strategic plan or not as to whether or not the plan itself can then be operationalized and exactly. understand the difference between a, a, a goal and an action. Right, yeah. And I think, you know, you mentioned the word measures. One of the – I think one of the most interesting things that we actually do, whether it's in a, an institutional strategic plan or the fund development plan, is to really focus on what are the measures we will look at so that we're 
constantly circling back and looking at the measures and the progress on those measures. Exactly. Uh, Simone, we do have a, an email question that just came in uh, uh, from Mike uh, in San Francisco. And, and Mike, it's a rather simple question, but I think a, a very uh, poignant question, uh, and that is, what am I missing? How do I get my board members to uh, help with fundraising? Well, I think it actually starts out with performance expectations. So I believe that every organization's board needs to talk about what we expect of each other as individuals, and those need to be written down and then adopted as a policy. Then when you interview, and I stress interview, when you interview candidates, Mike, for board positions, you are sharing with them these performance expectations, and they must agree to those performance expectations before they're ever nominated. Now, on my website, which is my name, simonjoyo.com, the majority of my website is a free library. So if you go to the website, click on resources, and visit the free download library, you'll see an entire section on boards. And in it is a sample board job description and then sample performance expectations of individual board members. And in the performance expectations of individual board members, I say things like help nurture relationships, help ensure that there are charitable contributions to the support of the organization. So for me, to get board members to help do fundraising, it starts with it has to be in their performance expectations, and it has to be done in the screening process for board candidates, and then we staff have to be really, really good at enabling them to do it by following up and nudging and nagging and that sort of thing. One of the things that, that I uh, uh, have as part of my uh, building a powerful board that can fundraise uh, uh, training is what I call a board responsibility policy that leads to a board pledge, an annual board pledge that covers lots of different things, including yep. minimum expectation of, of uh, board members' attendance at board meetings and committee meetings and, yep. uh, and involvement with the fundraising process, but also speaks to uh, the notion of setting minimum expectations for board giving and getting. What do you think about that? I believe in 100% participation in giving, but I do not believe in minimum gifts, as in a specified amount. because. One of my concerns about good governance is that we have linked boards and corporate governance to fundraising excessively. So I hear lots of fundraisers and lots of staff say, really, the only purpose of the board is to fundraise. Well, that's wrong. There's an entire right. panoply of requirements for corporate governance. And I also don't want boards composed of individuals with only one kind of connection, influence, and socioeconomic status. So what I put in my individual board member performance expectations, which includes everything like attend board meetings, come prepared, read the material, bring it, you know, participate in group conversation, and help with the charitable gifts area. What I say is give an annual financial contribution, personal financial contribution, to the best of personal ability. And then it's up to the board chair, the staff, to figure out how much to ask for, how much to ask the board member for. So mm -hmm. the woman who has three trust funds is going to be asked for more money than the single father of six kids who works in the public school kitchen. Right, right, right. But but what what about the the aspect of uh, board members uh, helping get gifts as well as just giving themselves? Well, I also specifically state that they must help nurture relationships on behalf of the organization and that there will be specific ways we will ask you to do that. And I also say you must help fundraise. And one of the things that I've been doing a lot recently is recommending to organizations that at the start of every board year, you offer a menu of choices to help in relationship building and fund development. And there are some things that everybody has to do, like give a gift and maybe attend, you know, the big fundraising event. But then there's a number of different choices, like serve on the development committee, participate in personal face-to-face -face solicitation, 
write notes on direct mail letters, make thank you calls to donors, serve on the fundraising event committee. So all, and then my goal is is that the board members will pick at the start of the year, and that will all be printed out so that we all see at the board meeting what we each pledged to do. And then we will be held accountable at board meetings to report and to have a conversation yeah, about I th- it. I think that's important. It's, 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 it's not allowing uh, board members to ever feel like it's a solidary process, but it really is a team right. approach. Isn't that right? Yes, yes. And I, can't, I don't think we can overemphasize, Ted, the importance of the ability of staff to enable people to do things. When I, when, actually, when I first wrote Strategic Fund Development, the first edition, I did a lot of exploration about what does it mean to help my volunteers do stuff? When I you know, first began in work in this sector as an executive director back in 1975, I was told over and over, it's your job to help, you know, to manage volunteers and help them do stuff. Nobody could tell me what that meant. Help. How do I help them? And that's when I wrote and, and have updated yet again in this third edition of Strategic Fund Development. My whole concept of our job is to enable and empower volunteers. And I have like 18 different things we're supposed to do to help them fundraise and to help them do good governance. We can't just sit there and say, well, I sent them an email and they haven't done it. That's not good empowerment. Simone, it seems that maybe you have a fan here. Scott from Chicago has sent in an email, and he's asking if you can explain the red pants factor. (laughs) What is the red pants factor? The red pants factor is about asking questions and taking risks and engaging in conversations and being prepared to be questioned. And the reason it's called, it's, it's in Keep Your Donors. And um, the, the story, as briefly as I can, is when I, I go every summer to teach at St. Mary's University in Minnesota in their philanthropy and development master's program, one year I went and my luggage was lost, and so I was wearing a pair of red pants for like four days. And in one of the classes one day, it was actually a governance class, I said, I want you to fill out this value. I want you to do blank, blank, blank. And one of the students in the class said, well, I don't know why we should do that because I don't think it's very smart and I don't think it really achieves anything. So there was this kind of gasp of silence, except that they all knew that I usually responded very well to that. So I said to her, well, why don't you think we should do that? And what ended up happening was that I created an avatar for myself so I said why do you think red pants shouldn't ask you to do that and she was wearing a black dress and I said so we had this conversation between our avatars of black dress and red pants and then another student wrote his final project on when red pants comes into a room you have to take risks and you have to be prepared for really questioning everything and anything and it's extraordinarily traumatic but it's absolutely marvelous that's the red pants factor (laughs) <laughs> well, I was hoping when, when I saw that that it, that it did have something to do with, uh, uh, with, with your teachings. So what, what are the risks, uh, keep, keeping an eye on the, the clock here, what, what are the risks that, uh, that uh, staff members should be taking with their boards? I think the risk, one risk is telling them the truth. Another risk is giving them the right information to help them do good corporate governance, not giving them information about management, which then invites them in there. I think another risk that staff have to take is to create an environment at the board meeting where we end up talking about whether we're supposed to talk about something before we ever talk about it. So I see at a board meeting a really good CEO, executive director, actually saying very professionally to the board, I do not believe this is something that is within your purview. It's management. And then we talk about whether it's really within our purview in governance or whether it's management's purview. And we do this professionally without accusing each other or getting angry with each other. I think that the biggest risk staff take is empowering the board to actually make the decisions they're supposed to make, realizing that the executive director may not actually agree with the decision. 
And, and, and I think that is one of the you know, the sort of two solemn tasks that that, uh, that I share, whether I'm speaking with staff or I'm speaking with boards. If I'm speaking with staff, I, I say your most solemn task is to prepare this organization for the day you won't be here. Yes, and for board nice. members, I tell them that your most solemn task is to replace yourself with someone just as good or better than yourself before you leave. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. You know, one sort of, again, watching the clock, but I think that one of the ways to motivate boards to actually look at themselves and to look at good corporate governance is the appalling failures of governance that we keep seeing. So I look at the BP Gulf oil spill, and I'm interested in the failure of corporate governance because that oil company was notorious for weak performance and weak protections. Why didn't the board talk about that regularly? Not from a management mm. perspective, but holding management accountable. Why didn't they? Exactly. Yeah. Simone, in, in uh, uh, most of us, uh, in, in good board governance and certainly in good bylaws construction, would typically advise for tenure and rotation, uh, typically seen as two, three-year terms uh, with uh, at least a one-year absence from the board uh, for the board member. Is, is, first of all, do you agree with that? And second of all, is there uh, an optimum or a, a tenure for executive directors? Well, first, I believe very strongly in term or in tenure limit. So, as you say, frequently we have three-year terms, and then we can, and then the bylaws specify you can only serve three, two consecutive three-year terms. So that seems to be fairly common. Sometimes you have two-year terms, and you can serve three consecutive two-year terms. I think that the importance of term limits is that it mandates us to change composition, to change people. It's a way of forcing us to constantly bring in new blood while we balance it with incumbent history. Mm -hmm. You know, and the question about length of uh, CEOs, EDs, I, that's a fascinating one. I, I do think there is a point at which one has to ask, I've been here for a decade or I've been here for 20 years, is it time for me to move on? Am I really sure that I'm not stuck in my own mental models? And so even right. as the organization changes, I guess I'm just not that comfortable with 20-year and 30-year CEOs. Yeah, I mean, so in, when you're working with boards of directors, what, what advice do you have for, for them when it, when it comes to this? I mean, do, do you speak to that at all, or is that just uh, on an a ongoing basis? It, you know, in most of the organizations I work with, they're not even capable of talking about that yet. They're still back to what what's corporate governance? And uh, but yeah, there I'm really talking, is. That yeah, brings us full circle, uh, Simone, because yeah. it, it really does bring us back to the back to the basics. And of course, that's such a, a, an important part of your work is really helping organizations build that base so that they have the skills to be able uh, to succeed. Simone Joyeau, thank you for joining us here at the Nonprofit Coaches. Uh, uh, we move on to uh, our final page three. I was just wondering if you could give us uh, one big takeaway uh, from Keep Your Donors, which is a very important book that I encourage everyone to buy one takeaway from keep your donors it's all about being donor centered it's all about actually finding out what my interests and aspirations are because I give through your organization to achieve my desires Thank you, Simone. I really, really appreciate you joining us here on The Nonprofit Coach. I look forward to seeing you in whatever country and whatever city we'll connect in uh, next. Once again, uh, on behalf of everyone here, thank you for joining us on The Nonprofit Coach. Thank you, Ted. I could go on and on talking to Simone Joyeau. She is just that good. Just to remind you that uh, we will...
Day uh, for the nonprofit coach with cause related marketing. Bruce Birch will be right here 12 noon on Tuesday. That's what we have for you today here on the nonprofit coach. Thank you so much. <laughs>